This is Gynecologic Healthcare, Chapter 12, Sexuality and Sexual Health. This is Segment 2, which begins with Sexual Anatomy and Physiology on page 216. A woman's understanding of her own sexual anatomy is an important precursor to sexual self-knowledge, the ability to gain sexual arousal and satisfaction, and communication of her needs and preferences to her partner. The clitoral complex. All too often, information about even the most accessible portion of the clitoral complex may be incomplete or lacking altogether. Traditionally, many people's definition and understanding of the clitoris has been limited to what is merely the glands or head of the clitoris. In fact, anatomic ultrasonographic MRI um, and histological studies are consistent in describing the components and characteristics of the, the variably named clitoris, clitoral complex, clitorourethrovaginal complex, or clitorourethral complex. Whatever nomenclature is used, the clitoris is vast and incorporates the glands, which is the head, the shaft, the body, the crura, the legs, the clitoral um, bulbs, and neuroplexus across much of the introitus and lower vagina. And although erect penises are familiar to many, clitoral erections tend to be unrecognized even though their size can range from 10 to 20 centimeters, with the clitoral body itself extending from 2 to 4 centimeters and attaining a width from 1 to 2 centimeters. When stimulated, the crura can swell to four, 5 to 9 centimeters, and the bulb's length can vary from 3 to 7 centimeters. The G-spot. There has been considerable controversy in the medical literature regarding the presence of an anatomic G-spot, a term coined by Adiego et al. in 1981 to describe a discrete, firm, 1.5 to 2 centimeter area anterior to the urethra that in one woman enlarged by 50% with stimulation. A more recent study of 13 cadavers found that the components of the clitoral complex as described in the previous section and shown in figure 12.1 were seen in all specimens regardless of the age of the participant. This is the largest anatomic study to date looking at the location of the putative G-spot. The dissections revealed that the urethra deep to the epithelium of the anterior vagina and did not show any macroscopic structures other than the urethra and vaginal wall lining. Other than where the urethra abuts the clitoris distally, the researchers found no erectile or spongy tissue in the anterior vaginal wall. They concluded that the G-spot as a discrete anatomic entity as had been described in the medical literature and discussed in the media does not exist. Stimulation to the anterior vaginal wall is pleasurable, arousable, arousing, and can facilitate orgasm in some women, which explains the enthusiasm for the concept of a G-spot. The clitoris and the vaginal wall are two sides of one structure. So an alternative explanation is that indirect pressure and stimulation to clitoral structures underlying the vaginal wall anteriorly can cause the robust sexual response attributed to the putative G-spot. Female ejaculation. Women may ask clinicians if it's normal to experience involuntary fluid emission during sexual arousal or, or, or orgasm. 
also known as female ejaculation or squirting. It is important to get a sense from the woman if this is a welcome or concerning experience. What is likely is that large amounts of fluid are the result of coital urinary incontinence. The amount that a woman may report can vary from less than 0.3 milliliters to more than 150 milliliters. Smaller amounts of fluid may reflect vaginal hyperlubrication or fluid produced by the Bartholin glands or Skene's glands. These structures may also be referred to as the female prostate. They are able to produce some amount of prostate-specific antigen, PSA. This scanty fluid is sometimes described as looking like watered-down or fat-free milk and may be reasonably described as ejaculate in contrast to the large amounts of fluid seen, within, seen with squirting or coital incontinence. Until recently, there were many reports of female ejaculation and squirting, but fewer than 20 women had participated in controlled laboratory studies during which they emitted fluid that was then analyzed. Those studies showed that the emitted fluid had a varied biochemical makeup but was mostly similar to dilute urine, albeit sometimes containing significant amounts of PSA. A subsequent study of women reporting larger volumes of squirting utilized pre- and post-emission ultrasonographic bladder monitoring and biochemical analysis. This investigation indicated that squirting is essentially the involuntary or voluntary emission of urine during sexual activity, and the emitted fluids contained a marginal amount of prostatic secretions. Sexual response in women. The sexual response involves both capacity in other words, what someone is capable of experience and activity. In other words, what the person actually experiences. Emotion and physiology are interwoven within the sexual response cycle. Traditionally, the Masters and Johnson 1966 model of sexual response as adapted by Kaplan in 1979 has been used to explain sexual response in both women and men. Masters and Johnson began the modern movement toward an understanding of the sexual response cycle and their description focuses on physiologic responses to stimuli. They identified two principal physiologic responses to sexual stimulation, vasocongestion and muscle tension. These responses are represented differently throughout the phases of the sexual response cycle. Later, authorities incorporated both biologic and psychological components of sexual response. The traditional female response, sexual response cycle, as I described by Masters and Johnson and Kaplan when modified to include the element of consent by Chalker in 1994 consists of four sequential phases, desire, excitement, orgasm, and resolution. The desire phase consists of sexual fantasy, thoughts, and awareness that sexual, sexual stimulation is wanted, albeit without the same degree of physiologic change that happens with arousal. Vasocongestion muscle tension, and other physiologic changes build, peak, and release, and then resolve during the excitement, orgasm, and resolution phases, respectively. During this cycle, progression occurs from a subjective sense of anticipation and pleasure to release, and finally to relaxation. In 2000, Bassan 
described an alternative model of female sexual response that is circular rather than linear. Bassant's original model was based on the theory that women are not motivated toward sexual activity by predominantly physical urges. In this model, women move from a sexually neutral state to seeking sexual stimuli when they sense either an opportunity to be sexual or a partner's need or when they have an awareness of one or more of the potential benefits of sexual activity. Because sexual desire is a response rather than a spontaneous event, although a woman may experience what she feels like is spontaneous desire in the form of sexual I'm sorry, sexual dreams, thoughts, or fantasies, women are more likely to be at a baseline neutral state at the onset of a partnered sexual experience. Many sexually satisfied individuals do not experience spontaneous sexual desire. Rather, sexual arousal and responsive sexual desire may occur simultaneously after the decision to experience sexual stimulation. Bassant et al. went on to endorse a composite model that reflects multiple reasons or incentives for sexual activity, including a sense of sexual urge, which is beneficial but not essential, and the variable order and merging of responsive or triggered desire and subjective arousal. Thus, there are many variable reasons for sex, and the states of sexual desire and subjective arousal from meaningful st sexual stimuli overlap. Figure 12.2 is a diagram of the composite circular and linear model. This depiction allows for a sense of very early desire for sexual sensations, arousal, orgasm, or no sexual sensations at the onset of sexual engagement. The relevance of the widely accepted current theoretical models of female sexual response based on Masters and Johnson, Kaplan and Bassan was explored with a random sample of 580 female registered nurses aged 25 to 69 years old. Participants were equally likely to endorse each of the different models of sexual female sexual response as representing their own sexual experience. In addition to lending credibility to these models, this clearly points to the hetero heterogeneity of sexual response. A more recent study surveyed 157 randomly selected female hospital employees and asked if their current sexual experiences were consistent with a linear model or with the circular model. Similar to the prior study, 70% of participants reported that their current sexual experiences were at times consistent with the linear model and at times with the circular model. Interestingly, reports of having sex for insecurity reasons have been more consistently associated with the Bassan model. Relationships, relationship contingency refers to deriving feelings of self-worth from romantic relationships. People of any sexual orientation who have relationship contingency are motivated to sustain relationships and increase intimacy, and they have been shown to be more likely to engage in sexual activity for these relational reasons. This can support sexual agency because having sex to improve intimacy is associated with autonomy and sexual satisfaction. Conversely, motivation to engage in sexual activities out of a desire to earn a partner's approval is associated with inhibition, and sexual dissatisfaction. Another aspect of sexual response theory, the dual control model, was first introduced by Jansen and Bancroft of the Kinsey Institute. The dual control model is based on research investigating neurotransmitters such as noradrenaline, 
dopamine, endocannabinoids, oxytocin, prolactin, serotonin, and opioids that impact sexual response. Each neurotransmitter recreates and contributes to either sexual excitation or to a sexual inhibitory process. For example, dopamine stimulates the reward center and contributes to sexual excitation and responsiveness. More serotonin pathways create sexual inhibition. This theory explains why medications that block serotonin and act on the dopamine pathways, such as flibanserin or ADE, can increase sexual excitation, perceived as a desire, while selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors can have negative sexual effects. A central feature of the central of the dual control model and the composite circular and linear model is the understanding that individuals vary greatly in their propensity for both sexual excitation and sexual inhibition. Much like the accelerator and brakes in a car, both processes occur simultaneously and the resultant sexual response in a given individual is determined by the delicate balance between excitation and inhibition. Knowledge of individual variations in neurotransmitters and the continuous interplay between excitation and inhibition helps researchers and clinicians appreciate the wide variability seen in human sexuality. Validated instruments for measuring such propensities demonstrate similar variability in women and men. An engaging book written for lay people by Nagoski in 2015 describes the essential concept of accelerators and brakes, the dual control theory, and their varied impact on sexual responses in women. Moving on to sexual agency. Sexual agency is a cornerstone of sexual health. Sexual agency is the concept that individuals have control over their own sexuality. Many terms are used in the literature to measure and describe this and closely allied concepts, allied concepts, including sexual self-schema, sexual self-efficacy, sexual self-comfort, and sexual self-esteem, all of which are highly correlated with sexual well-being. Central to sexual agency is knowing what one likes sexually, sexual self-knowledge, being able to ask for it, sexual self-disclosure, and the ability to say no, decline or rescind consent maybe explicitly limited consent, or yes, give enthusiastic consent, and the ability to initiate sexual interaction. Many other concepts discussed in this chapter contribute to sexual agency or the lack of it, but simply put, the goal is for clinicians to support women in having control over all aspects of their sexuality. The ability to ask for one what one wants sexually which is called sexual self-disclosure, is a crucial yet challenging aspect of sexual agency that relies on self-knowledge about sexual preferences to know which information about one's sexuality, anatomy, and preferences to communicate to a partner. A woman's level of sexual self-disclosure is positively associated with her sexual self-satisfaction and sexual functioning. Lower levels of body shame and higher levels of body appreciation are correlated with sexual self-disclosure, sexual assertiveness, and feelings of entitlement to sexual pleasure. There are many associated benefits of sexual agency, such as greater condom use and lower levels of body self-consciousness during sexual activity. 
Historically, women and their partners have faced wide-ranging negative messages about female sexuality and stigmatizing representations of female bodies. These messages range from stereotyped images to teach women that their bodies are flawed or they are expected to have sex solely to please their partner. To extremes such as punishment by death for women who openly express their sexuality or are caught being sexual, sexual guilt, negative body image, and sex-negative family attitudes and conditioning can negatively impact measures of sexual well-being, psychological satisfaction, physiological I'm sorry, physiological satisfaction, and one's ability to enjoy sex. Feelings of body shame are common among women in general, and even more likely in women who have experienced sexual violence. Given the prevalence of sexual coercion and violence, clinicians often need to emphasize the skills a woman needs to be able to say no to unwanted sexual activity and to decline or withdraw consent. This means supporting a woman's ability to set limits on whether she engages in sexual activity, the type of sexual activity engaged in, and the timing of that activity. One example of time setting, of limit setting, is safer sex practices, for example, condom use, which may require discussion between partners. Clinicians can assist women by providing interactive counseling, conversations, active listening, and tools such as condom comebacks. See box 12.3 to support women's sexual agency in the way they interact with partners. Consenting to unwanted sex. I'm sorry, start this again. Consenting to wanted sex can be challenging in an environment where sexual activity may be stigmatized, regulated, or have unintended consequences. Even highly desired, pleasurable sex between consenting adults can result in transmission of STIs or undesired pregnancy. Developing sexual agency includes making increasingly conscious choices regarding one's own sexuality, sexual behavior, and sexual activity, including increasing the ability to initiate and consent to wanted sex. A clinician can be a valuable resource by utilizing active listening skills and asking open-ended, focused questions designed to clarify negative conditioning about sex. In this way, a woman can be insist assisted to sort out her own values about her sexuality and make conscious choices that are consistent with those values. Examples of these skills include paraphrasing. So I hear you saying that you feel like you've gotten some pretty strong negative impressions about masturbation from your mom. Do I have you right? Or it sounds like on the one hand, you really enjoy it when your partner performs oral sex on you. And on the other hand, you feel a bit embarrassed about it. Am I hearing that correctly? Sexual agency includes the ability to initiate sexual interaction or activity, either partnered or solo. This encompasses a woman's ability to initiate the type, timing, and range of sexual activity that she wants. Traditionally, women have been at best considered passive partners in sexual encounters, or at worst, relegated to an assortment of sex-negative roles regarding, I'm, yeah, sex-negative roles regarding sex. Given these constraining messages, it can be challenging for some women to overcome familial, cultural, religious, or societal expectations to gain enough sexual agency 
to initiate sexual activity. In addition to these barriers, women who initiate sexual interaction run the risk of feeling disappointment or rejection because there is always the possibility that a partner might not be available or might not agree to engage in sex or in the type of sex that the woman is seeking. Women may experience and therefore may be legitimately wary of societal stigma, such as being termed promiscuous or a slut in response to having taken an active role in initiating sex. Clinicians can help women gain sexual agency by supporting their efforts to initiate satisfying sexual encounters. This support can be accomplished by using active listening and paraphrasing as described previously. Clinicians can also ask focused, open-ended questions designed to help a woman clarify what has worked well for her in terms of initiating sexual encounters in the past. When preferring information or education about sexual health topics, an additional tool that a clinician can use is to sandwich the information between two questions so that the discussion remains centered on the individual woman rather than merely reciting advice. This process, which is called making an information sandwich, is helpful when a clinician has a piece of valuable information to share. For example, a clinician might say, it sounds like you're saying that you feel like you are being pushy when you initiate sex with your partner. Are there any things you've tried in the past that let your partner know you would, what you would like? That let your partner know you would like to have sex, but don't make you feel pushy. Then, after the woman replies and the clinician paraphrases what she said, the clinician can offer a piece of information. Sometimes people who are less interested in sexual interactions begin feeling interested when their partner frames sexual feedback in positive ways rather than as criticism. Then the clinician would follow this statement with another focused question like, have you noticed how you or your partner feels when sexual feedback is framed positively? I love it when you move really slowly versus negatively. No, that's way too fast. Given the importance of sexual self-disclosure, the benefit of framing information regarding preferences and giving positive feedback to a partner while minimizing critical feedback is important information for a clinician to share. Yet at other times saying don't do that to a partner is appropriate from a standpoint of safety and agency. Other important pieces of information that clinicians can sandwich between questions include descriptions of sexual anatomy with visual aids Information about books, websites, videos, sexual lubricants, and sex toys. Information about how to experience orgasm, including that orgasm generally requires clitoral stimulation. Condom comebacks for discussing condom use and letting the woman know that spectating, mental distraction, and self-judgment during sex is a common barrier to sexual pleasure. All right, we're going to read box 12.3. Suggested language for women to use in conversations about condoms. Comments for women to make to men. I can't wait to see you wearing nothing but a condom. I feel sexier when I feel safe. It's easier for me to relax and enjoy myself if I don't have to think about HIV or other STIs or getting pregnant. Comments from men with suggested responses for women. It's not comfortable to have sex with a condom. Riding without a seatbelt is more comfortable too. 
If you're not comfortable using a condom, let's try something other than intercourse. Sex doesn't feel as good. I can't feel anything with a condom. Safe sex feels better. A condom spoils the mood. It ruins the moment. It's not spontaneous. Putting the condom on together as part of foreplay. I'll put it on for you. We can put it on together so the condom is part of the moment. It isn't interrupting it. The mood will come back. It takes too long to put on a condom. Let me help you put it on. We have all night. What's the rush? I'm not in a hurry. I like it when we take our time. Just this once, let's have sex without a condom. I don't ever have sex without a condom. So just this once, I will have to say no. It only takes one time. Once is all it takes. The risk just isn't worth it to me. Don't you trust me? I trust you not to put us at risk for infection. I trust you not to put us at risk for pregnancy. I do trust you, but either of us could have an infection and not know about it. It's not a matter of trust. All right. I think that is, we still have time. That's 24 minutes. So let's do control over pelvic muscles. Another cornerstone of sexual health is awareness of, and awareness of control over and strength in the pelvic muscles, the ones that are under conscious control and are collectively referred to as the pelvic floor were fully described in chapter six. There are many benefits to having control over the pelvic musculature. Pelvic floor control can decrease urinary incontinence and prevent pelvic organ prolapse. Control over the muscles distributed throughout the vagina and introitus can also aid sexual health and pleasure in multiple ways. In the case of a woman who chooses to have penetration as a part of her sexual activity, she can relax the muscles to facilitate various types of penetration. She can also relax the musculature to accommodate various positions. Tightening these muscles can help protect against deep dyspareunia if a woman experiences sensitivity deep in the pelvis or has pain with thrusting against the fundus due to a retroflexed uterus. The muscles surrounding the introitus and anus create a figure eight shape that fully enshrouds and supports the clitoral complex, which explains how contracting these muscles can increase the physical stimulation of the clitoris. A clinician can assess the pelvic musculature during any visit that includes a pelvic examination. Most of the earliest data on the benefits of Kegel exercises utilized biofeedback machines for training women to identify and gain control of their pelvic muscles. During a biofeedback session, the patient relaxes and contracts the muscles of her pelvic floor. With the feedback, helping her to differentiate these muscles from the abdominal, thigh, and buttocks muscles. With time and feedback, she can learn to isolate the muscles that control the perianal region from the vaginal musculature. Biofeedback remains the gold standard for assessment and training the pelvic musculature. In many parts of the United States, there are physical therapists who specialize in sexual medicine and the pelvic floor. Clinicians should be familiar with those specialists in their area so they can provide timely, appropriate, high-quality references. An excellent source for referrals is the Academy of Pelvic Health Physical Therapy, APTA. Their website allows users to search by geographic location and includes physical therapists specializing in a wide array of sexual and pelvic issues, including bladder or bowel incontinence, pelvic or genital pain, 
and concerns unique to pregnancy and the postpartum period. If referral to a physical therapist or use of a biofeedback machine is not an option, a clinician can assess the strength of a woman's pelvic floor muscles and her current ability to identify and control those muscles during an office visit. The clinician begins by explaining the process, and if the woman agrees, the clinician places one or two fingers into the vagina, just as one would for a bimanual pelvic examination, and asks the woman and asks the woman to grip the, phys- the clinician's fingers with her vaginal muscles. The clinician can simultaneously grasp the woman's fingers in their own to reflect and transmit the information that the clinician gains during the examination. The clinician can note the baseline, tone, control, and strength in the chart to compare these values with those obtained at future follow-up visits. Instruction on how to perform Kegel exercises should be given during the first visit. See Chapter 24 for more information on Kegel exercises. Kegel exercises can also be helpful for women who express concern about their ability to experience orgasm or who are interested in exploring ways to experience orgasm. To heighten awareness of her sexual responses, a woman must allow time to explore these feelings and, to the greatest extent possible, banish the self-critique that might be hovering around. Distraction during sex with this spectatoring can easily interrupt focus and prevent orgasm. Often, distraction is worse with a partner, but even when a woman is alone masturbating, distraction due to spectatoring can prevent orgasm. Products to enhance sexual health. Sexual lubricants. The addition of exogenous lubrication to sexual activity has been credited with being as important to sex as communication. The use of sexual sexual lubricants can facilitate wanted penetration, make good sex better, and allow penetration with larger things than might otherwise be accommodated, like multiple fingers or toys. For parts of the body that do not produce their own lubrication, such as the anus, or may no longer create enough lubrication, the postmenopausal vagina, the addition of exogenous lubrication can make contact or penetration pleasurable that would otherwise be painful or uncomfortable. The use of lubricants can also be a way for partners to engage creatively with their eroticism. Two nationally representative studies provide an estimate of lubricant use among U.S. women. In the first study, 65.5% of adult women reported ever having used lubricant, and 20% had used lubricant within the past 30 days. The most common uses were during penile vaginal intercourse and partnered non-penetrative sexual play. Common reasons for lubricant use included to make sex more comfortable, fun, and pleasurable, and to decrease discomfort and pain. All participants in the second study identified as lesbian or bisexual. Most women reported having used lubricant, and 25.7% of lesbian women and 32.7% of bisexual women had used lubricant in the past 30 days. Lubricant was used during partnered sexual play, partnered sexual intercourse, or when a vibrator or dildo was used. Lesbian and bisexual participants reported using lubricants to increase arousal, sexual pleasure, and desire to make sex more fun and decrease and to increase physical comfort during sex. Additional studies have examined various aspects of lubricant use, including comparing different types of lubricants. In a study that assessed perceptions of lubricant use and vaginal wetness during sexual activity, 
Women reported that they felt positive about lubricant use, preferred sex to feel more wet, felt that they were more easily orgasmic when sex was more wet, and thought their partners preferred sex to feel more wet than dry. Participants in their 40s reported more positive perceptions of lubricants than women who were younger. In a daily diary study, women reported episodes of penile vaginal sex, penile anal sex, masturbation, lubricant use, rating of sexual pleasure and satisfaction, and genital symptoms. Water-based lubricants were associated with fewer genital symptoms compared with silicone-based lubricants. However, use of either type of lubricant was rarely associated with genital symptoms. Both types of lubricants were associated with higher ratings of sexual pleasure and satisfaction for masturbation and penile vaginal sex. Water-based lubricant use was more highly correlated with higher ratings of sexual pleasure and satisfaction for penile anal sex compared with no lubricant use. Well, that's kind of a no-brainer. In a study that compared patient preferences and reported effectiveness of water-based versus silicone-based lubricant for discomfort during sexual activity in postmenopausal breast cancer patients, pain and discomfort during penetration improved more during silicone-based lubricant use than during water-based lubricant use. All measures of sexual discomfort reported more commonly with water than with silicone-based lubricant, and twice as many participants preferred silicone-based to water-based lubricant. Clinicians recommending sexual lubricants need to be familiar with data about the potential adverse effects of water-soluble lubricants, which can damage epithelial cells in the vagina, anus, and rectum, and can increase inflammatory markers in both the lower and upper genital tract. It is well established that product containing nonoxanol 9 can increase the risk of HIV transmission, have detrimental effects on lactobacillus, disrupt the vaginal and rectal epithelial lining, and create sloughing that can cause epithelial ulceration. In addition, studies in vivo have seen an increase in inflammatory markers in both the upper and lower genital tract, which may increase susceptibility to other STIs, including herpes simplex virus infection. It is now evident that many water-based sexual lubricants not containing nonoxalanine carry similar risks. One reason for this increased risk is that most of the widely used sexual lubricants in the United States are hyperosmolar. They are made with high concentrations of glycerol, propylene glycol, polyquaternary compounds, or other ingredients that have 4 to 30 times higher osmolality than healthy vaginal fluid. The osmolality of healthy vaginal fluid is 370 plus or minus 40. In a 3D model of human vaginal epithelium tissue, lubricants with osmolality greater than four times that of vaginal fluid markedly reduced epithelial barrier properties and showed damage in the tissue structure. Lubricants with osmolality greater than 1500 caused disruption in the parabasal and basal layers of cells and reduced barrier integrity. There was no damage to the epithelial layers with lubricants that have an osmolality of less than 400. Box 12.4 lists commercially available lubricants that have, test, have been tested and are shown to be toxic to epithelial cells or detrimental 
to lactobacillus in vitro, and those that have been shown to be safe for rectal and vaginal epithelia. This is a short list, but it includes the lubricants that have been tested. As new data emerge, clinicians will have more practical information about which sexual lubricants to recommend. In the meantime, determining if the osmolarity of a given lubricant is more than 12 to 1500 is a good way to steer women towards safer products. All right, we're going to do box 12.4 and then be done with this segment. Non-irritating lubricants that are safe to use. Allocadabra, female condom 2 lubricant, which is silicone-based. Good Clean Love, PRE, Pressed, Restore, Slippery Stuff, and Wet Platinum, which is silicone-based. Here are some irritant lubricants. Astroglide, Easy Jelly, Boy Butter, Elbow Grease, ID Glide, ID Glide Ultra Long Lasting, KY Jelly, KY Personal Lubricant, KY Warming Jello, Jello I'm sorry, KY Warming Jelly, or replens. This ends segment two and we'll start with segment three, sexual devices in the third and last segment.